Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Oh, what a day, right? I don't know if anybody else has been feeling this way, but the past couple of weeks have just been like a lot. <laughs> I feel like the last year has been a lot. Maybe that's what it is. It's like that sometimes I don't recognize and this. I know I'm a therapist. I should know better. But like I've said before, just because I know better doesn't mean I always do better. And I am aware of the emotional toll the anniversaries, you know, can take on our mental health. But I've always considered myself like even the anniversary of my father passing away, like I don't, I actually over the past couple of years have like forgot, is it this day or that day? And so I've always been under the belief because of those things that like, oh, I'm not that much of an anniversary person. But I do think that whether we want to recognize or not, it's been a year of us being in quarantine off and on and weird things happening in our world and all of this. And so even if I want to be like, it's all fine, la la la, anniversaries don't affect me. I think they do. I don't know. What do you think? Let me know in the comments. I'm curious because it's just, it's felt like a lot. It's been hard to focus. So if you're feeling that way, I just put that out there so that you know you're not alone. Sometimes I think we need that reminder more often than not. Am I right? Okay. So we have 11 questions. And the reason we have 11, you get, honestly, sometimes I wish I could just answer them all, but this would be like the longest podcast of all time. But I was picked 10. And if you guys don't know, the last two, but in this one, the last three are questions that I just randomly, like I legitimately, you know, on my mouse go foop and flip through the questions that you have asked. And just when it stops, I pick one that's in that screen. That's how I do it. Just random. It's totally random. And this time when I went to X out and be like, oh, I'm done. Another, I saw another question. I was like, oh, I'll answer that one too. So we have three that are just totally random. Doesn't matter how many likes they got. But the first nine are all based on likes. And what I'm talking about, if you're wondering where these comments or questions are gathered, I gather them on my podcast channel, Opinions That Don't Matter on YouTube in the community tab. So when you go to the channel page, like the actual page of the channel, you'll see these tabs where it's like, I think it says videos about stuff like that. And community is one of them. You hit the community tab. And on Mondays, I ask and that's where you can ask them. So okay, let's without further ado, enough of me rambling. Sometimes I feel like I want to just chat with you a little, but let's get into your questions because that's what you're really here for. Am I right? Okay. Question number one says, hey, Katie, could you talk about why therapists sometimes don't react with shock or surprise or sadness to things you might tell them like abuse, or they don't give away any emotional clues about what they're thinking? And there were comments on this as well. Like uh, one said, adding on to that, how do they not hold that trauma and add it to the next session or add it to themselves? boundaries, but I'll talk about that. Another one said, hi, Katie, could you also share how therapists manage to keep a neutral face or remain calm even when clients share something shocking or surprising? I'm hoping to be a therapist someday and would love to learn how to do that. I thought this was such a great question. And I don't think, I mean, maybe I've talked about it before. The comments answering this question were wonderful. And so many of you are just, you, you know, wise, so wise, or are also a therapist and really great at your job. So the reason the reason that therapists do not react with shock, first of all, they're not supposed to. And here's why. So if you tell me something about abuse or or something shocking, even like, uh, you know, a story about something that was hurtful for you and you're like, and I can't believe it happened. I, as a therapist, if I react without knowing how it felt for you, especially in the case of trauma. Like, let's just talk about that. Let me give an example and like talk you through that first, because that I feel like is is really when it's important for as a therapist to not respond or react in that in some kind of way. 
Imagine that you're telling your therapist about, you know, the physical abuse you sustained as a child and you're talking about it, but you haven't really processed it. And even as you talk, you like laugh. A lot of people do that. A lot of my patients will laugh. It's like a coping mechanism or defense mechanism. We don't even know. We're just like, huh, it's like so overwhelming emotionally. We Sometimes we react in a, a, what would some people might consider a bizarre fashion, but very common. So if a therapist, while you're talking about that, starts crying or is like, oh my God, that's horrible. It gets in the way of our own process. And without even maybe realizing it or meaning to, by a therapist saying that like, oh, that must be horrible. I feel so bad for you. They're taking their own emotional response and placing it or trying to give it to us to identify or define that scenario without giving us as the patient the time to come around to it on our own. Because I I mean, I don't know if anybody feels this way, but I've had lots of patients and even viewers over the years tell me about a really terrible time. Let's say like their parents had a really horrific divorce. That's a trauma, right? And they'll tell me about it. And I might even because I'm human, I might be thinking but not showing, wow, that's so shitty. And that sounds really terrible. And oh, man, no wonder, you know, no wonder they're they're struggling with eating disorder like behaviors or whatever, I might think those things. But then my patient can say to me, you know, I'm really glad that happened. It was hard at the time, but it allowed me to become who I am. And I realize that that's why my eating disorder, they might already have this, their own thoughts and take on it. And their own response to that situation. And it's not up to me to give them an emotional response. Does that make sense? So that's part of it. So it's part, I don't need to give you my emotional response. Therapy is about you having an opportunity to come up with your own and figure out how it feels to you and process that with me, feeling free to go through whatever emotions come up, okay? Then the second thing is, is a huge component of being a therapist is offering what we call unconditional positive regard, which means it's kind of comes along with that, like holding space for people where it's like, I'm just going to give you this safe space to not, uh, to not have any judgment, to not have any preconceived notions, to just give you a space to share what you need to share in a way that you need to share it and be there with you to validate. And so therefore, I'm not going to react to what you say. I'm not going to show any emotion as much as I humanly, you know, it's humanly possible. I'm just going to hold that space for you, let you know it's okay to say that out loud, that that um, I understand and I'm here for you, right? That's kind of the whole goal of therapy. And that's part of what we're really like, it's drilled into us in school is just to be there and to not react. Because if we react, we can also, and I know I'm kind of all over the place, but as a side note to that first point, if we react, we can also, you know, kind of um, invalidate without realizing it, or uh, cause embarrassment, shame, guilt, which we all know trauma, like it sends us into those spirals of those things. If you guys don't know, shame is when we believe something is wrong with us. Embarrassment is, oh my God, I've done something wrong as well as guilt, you know. Um, Guilt's like, you know, I feel I feel like I shouldn't have done that. I need to make amends or, oh my God, you know, and embarrassment's like I did something weird or silly or not appropriate. So anyways, um, that's why we don't do it. And that doesn't mean we don't feel it. And I will be honest with you that there have been a few, probably three cases, maybe two, but I think three, where I have cried with my patients at some point. And it's not 
it's more like they started crying and they're telling me something terrible and then I can't help it because I'm human. I cry too. And I've talked with other colleagues of mine, even friends of mine who are also mental health professionals. I have a lot of friends because you're a psych major in college and you go to grad school and you see them, you know, you're with them all the time. So they're like some of my closest friends. And a lot of them have done the same, you know, and, and sometimes it's, and that honestly can be connecting and healing. And the cases, in my experience with those three cases that I can remember right now, it was like a, a growth in our therapeutic relationship. But it, but I wouldn't, obviously, I don't make a habit of it, right? I've had how many patients over the years, and I can only think of three times. And one of them, I don't know if they realized because they were crying so intensely. I don't know if they realized that I was tearing up. Because when I say cry, it's like tearing and I can't stop it, you know, so I get tissues and we just deal with it. And we kind of sit together in that. And I think that that can be good too. But that is definitely not the norm um, as far as therapy. And then to get into, um, I guess, so that's the why, really. Because it's your time and space to feel and do what you need to do. And I want you to feel like I have the container that's big enough to hold it for you so that you know it's okay to keep dumping more into that container, if that makes sense. And so the follow-up questions of how do we not hold on to the trauma and add it into the ne next session or add it to ourselves? Now that comes along with, with proper training and proper boundaries. So I know a lot of times I talk about boundaries that have to be communicated and, and spoken and, and put in place with people. But when it comes to the therapeutic relationship, it's all in the way that we as therapists, as mental health professionals, set up that relationship. Meaning, it's why I don't tell my patients a lot about myself. They don't know me very well because it's not about me, it's about them. And that distance that I get from them not knowing me really well keeps us both safe. It allows me to not take on their issues as my own like I would with the, my close girlfriend. And it also allows me to offer a more distanced view, hopefully a clearer view of what's happening and some possible ways to change or get out of a situation. Do you know what I mean? It's like sometimes with distance comes clarity. And if we're too close to an issue or too emotionally involved, we can't see it clearly. We can't see both sides. We can't take any action or or even have a non-judgmental or, you know, play devil's advocate. We can't do that because we're just too close. And so, those boundaries in place with the way that we set up therapeutic relationships help that. Not to mention, and this is something that I've talked with a lot of colleagues lately because it's been really hard for therapists and mental health professionals to work from home and do this. First of all, for privacy, like the number of sound machines that people have asked me about and purchased and all that stuff just for privacy and, and closets setting up. I mean, you know, we don't all have space in our home for private conversations. And so a lot of them are doing them in their bathroom in this area that they've set up because they can have two doors. Anyway, long story short, it's been hard to separate home life and work life. And something that has been very healing for me, and I'm sure for a lot of mental professionals out there is having that space between work and home, where I get in my car and I drive to the office and I park in my space and then I go up the elevator and I get in my office, you know, like there's a process to it. And then I leave everything there, like all of my files and stuff. I don't take that stuff home. I leave it in a locked filing cabinet in my office. Then I go home and it's like that time going home is like time for me to kind of stop working and start my home life. And so a lot of us, um, in our, we have little Zoom hangouts now every now and again. I've been talking about like ways to make that happen when we're at home. And that's a little trickier, but when things are back to normal, that is how, again, we have that boundary, work, work life and personal life. And those are very separate. And then also not taking it into the next, se the next session is, again, the boundaries of it. And the fact that we have that little space in between 
where I don't know if anybody else in the mental professional field does this, but like I take my notes and then I close the file and I put it to the side and I open the next one. And that's just my transition. That's like my brain switching from one to the next. And I know it's kind of hard for people to understand it when it comes to people's real lives and stories. But when you're a therapist, you're looking for certain things when it comes to those stories and lives. And again, that distance in the relationship, them not knowing anything about you, it helps protect that, helps it helps us as professionals to see it for what it is and to be able to assist without getting too close. And I know we think closeness means that we're better able to work through it and it's actually not the truth. Um, and then I get, think the final question is keeping a neutral face or remaining calm. It's just part of practice and training. And somebody left a comment below this. It was like, maybe it's because therapists have seen and heard so much that they're almost desensitized. And as much as I'd like to say, oh, that's not true, it's definitely true. Um, I do remember my first, one of my first jobs, it was actually my third job, but I worked at a hospital. And when, you know, people are hospitalized, they're not their best selves. A lot of them are fluidly psychotic. Some are, you know, in full-blown mania with bipolar disorder and have pressured speech. People just aren't at their best. Obviously, if we have to be 5150 or be hospitalized in any way in the psych ward, we're not feeling like our, our best selves. And so my first... God, like probably two weeks. It was hard for me not to be shocked and scared and overwhelmed or sad for people. And I remember my my supervisor at the time, she was like, I know it feels overwhelming right now. Feel free to take breaks, but it sounds crazy to say it, but you start to get used to it. And I did. And I didn't, didn't think that I could. Also at the Eden Sword Treatment Center, um, some people are very, very ill and, and catching people, you know, engaging in Eden Sword behaviors or whatever, um, helping some people in and out of showers. And that can be very shocking. And I remember the first times of those things happening and me catching someone like it was very overwhelming and probably hard for me. And I would assume I didn't do a good job of hiding my own visceral reaction to that of like, oh my God, or, you know, um, but over time, we do also become desensitized. And that, again, it's that kind of space in there that allows us to be good at our jobs. And so I think through practice and through that buffer of professional, you know, you don't know anything about me. It's it's building the relationship that you have with yourself and the life around you and helping you better navigate that. It's It's the dynamic of a therapeutic relationship that allows for it, which is probably why those of you who aren't in the field yet, you know, can't imagine it because I couldn't have imagined it either. But it just, it just happens. And trust me, you will learn how to do it and you will get better at it. And there's always going to be those few times, like I'll always remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll always remember one of the, it was like one of my first few weeks in the eating disorder treatment center. And one of the patients came up to me and was like lamenting about having gained weight and showing me her different body parts and talking about not nothing sexual, just like arms, legs, things like that. And being like, this is fat and I used to be so thin and blah. And they, she was like lamenting. And I, with because I didn't know what I was doing, frankly, I was brand new. And it's like, you know, my first job at a college. Or I was still in grad school, by the way. Um, and I was like, I held up my arm and I said, so, so what does that make me then? You know, I was like trying to, in my logic brain, not understanding eating disorders yet. I was like, well, my arm's clearly larger than yours and you're lamenting about this. And, and she... <laughs> She, this was not her first rodeo. She'd been in treatment like off and on for, for a long time. And she was like, is that supposed to make me better or feel better? Is that what you learned in school? Ugh. And she walked away. And I was like, fuck, I fucked that up. I totally fucked that up. And, you know, I learned and did better. So I, I want anybody out there who's considering 
getting into the therapy field or you know social work, psychology, psychiatrist, whatever it is that you want to become, we're not going to be perfect 100% of the time. There are going to be times when you do things that patients don't like or you do things that aren't, that that's not the right way to do it. Like now I look back at that and I'm like, oh my God, Katie, what were you thinking? But I didn't know, right? And we learn and we do better. So if as a therapist, you're listening, you're like, oh my God, I have showed, you know, shock face and cried and blah, blah, blah before. That's okay. We learn, we try, we do again. Um, but anyway, so let's move on to question number two, because I could talk about that a lot. And I don't know, you know, I may be off base of what you really wanted to learn. Question number two. Hi, Katie. How is a therapist to react when a patient doesn't even trust them enough to tell them why they're there? Can such a patient even get therapy or would they be deemed untreatable? Now, there are comments on this one as well, but let's get into that first. So I have a ton of patients who... I actually don't think I've had one that hasn't told me why why they're there, like hasn't answered that question, but I have had plenty that tell me they're there for one reason and then like three, four months into it, I realize they're there for a whole other reason. Uh, for example, I had a patient years ago, was a, a she was in school and she told me it was anxiety around test taking. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, pull out in my brain. I'm like, pull out CBT file. Let's get into some cognitive behavioral tools. And then as I got to know her better, and for some reason, none of the tools are working, by the way, also, obviously, then I realized there was more thing, there was more to this, there was more self injury going on, dissociation, come to find out it was really trauma that was causing all this. But I don't even know if that patient necessarily lied because at the time she might have thought it was just that and that might have been the main reason that she was coming in, not because I think we can all understand and, and kind of, I don't know if the word is like commiserate, but it's like, I get that a lot of times when we've been traumatized, we don't know that we have because we've repressed memories or, you know, we just, we're wanting to treat that symptom, right? I can't tell you how many times I have patients that come in. I think everybody does this. Even me personally, I've done it in my own therapies. You come in for one issue, not realizing that that stems from this other thing that you've just never dealt with, like um, complicated grief, trauma, uh, low self-esteem, you know, shit talking yourself all the time. And all you think is like, but I'm just having trouble sleeping at night, right? We can all do that. And so I think that oftentimes patients don't know really why they're there, even if they think they do. But I think if you don't trust your therapist at the beginning, that's fine. It's very normal. And if they ask like, what brought you in? You can say, I'm not sure. I just don't feel good you know, or I'm just not sure. We don't have to have all the answers and we don't have to tell them everything right out the gate. I think that you can still get therapy. It might be difficult for you to find someone that specializes in the thing that you're struggling with because we don't know what it is. Um, but if you know and you just don't trust them enough to tell them, you could still select the right person. So, you know, for example, if you were struggling with, you know, eating disorder, self-injury work and you come into my office, you would have found me because that's my specialty but if it was trauma, you might have found my my friend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman. That's her specialty. But that doesn't mean you have to tell us, either of us up front, about that. You can just say, you know, I don't know. I'm not feeling good. I don't, you know, I just wanted to seek out help because I, I, I feel like I need to talk to someone, you know. And we'll go from there. We don't expect everybody to just be these open books where they tell you everything, okay? Um, and so that's kind of how you can get therapy. Because you still know, so you can find the right person, still find the 
right fit, someone that you like enough that you think is is kind and warm enough and you wouldn't mind coming back and talking to them. Again, therapy is not friendship, but it you should feel that little way that we kind of feel when we meet someone new and we're like, I kind of like them. I could see them again. I want you to feel that with them. And once you have that and the relationship keeps building and we feel okay doing it, the trust and the sharing will come. Um, so you're not deemed untreatable. No, a lot of people struggle opening up in therapy. It's very, very common. Now the comments after this question were, how about when you don't trust the therapist or any therapist because they can make it a big deal when it's not warranted or feel that fear that the therapist will overreact. Therefore you choose to lie or not be open about some very sensitive subjects like suicide. Thanks. So yes, that is that is an issue for a lot of people. And I hear that from you guys all the time about being worried that if you talk about suicidal thoughts or ideations that then, you know, they're, they're going to 5150 me. They're going to put me in the hospital and I have no choice and my life's going to be ruined. There are ways around that. And I don't know if other therapists would get annoyed at me talking about this, but I think sometimes if we, if we're worried that they're going to section us or put it in a 5150 hold, call it different things depending on where you're from. If we worry about that, we can. it's okay to bring up in session that worry. You can say, you know, the other day I was reading, I'm, I'm just making this up, you know, the other day I was reading about, or I watched a video on YouTube about 5150s. Why, why do those happen? You know, like, is it, if I have suicidal thoughts, you're just going to 5150 me? Like, that's kind of scary. It's okay to bring that up like that. Or I've heard about people being sectioned, or I had a friend that was sectioned, and all they did, you know, was tell their therapist that they were having a tough time. Like, I've had a tough time before. Like, you know, you can talk about it like that. And it's a very distanced thing. And they, they probably, that therapist, whoever you tell, is going to ask follow up questions. And it's up to you to share what you want to share. You don't have to share yeah, I'm going through it right now. But that's a good way to gauge what they think, why they would do it. I know I've talked about this on here before, but I was taught in my training in school and, you know, in my gathering my clinical hours towards my licensure, I was trained to consider to think of or consider 5150s or being sectioned, they call it that in the UK, as a last resort. Because and I think now as I practiced more and more, I recognize why is because it's not actually that helpful. It, it basically just keeps us safe for a little period of time. And if <clears throat> it's out of psychosis or you know uh, bipolar mania or you know psychotic depression, there's a lot of different things. When we we're kind of like not ourselves and we can't think clearly, it, it could be beneficial and it's there for a reason. However, for most people, it's it's traumatizing, it's upsetting, and it, it usually lasts more than, you know, a few days. Sometimes it can take us a long time to get out of there and it's not always good or, or therapeutic, really. And so I was taught to do all these other things leading up to that. But you all have told me, and I hear you, that like that's not how other therapists are. And so I think by just asking about it, bringing up even like a fake story about a friend to to gauge what their what they think about it and what their policies are is a great place to start because then at least you kind of know where they stand without having to be worried about them doing that to you now. We can just learn about their policies and better understand it. But in my experience, like I said, it's a last resort. So I don't, I mean, yes, the conversation of suicide is sensitive. However, I just... That's just not what I do. If I, I mean, I have, I've had so many patients over the years. And even viewers, you guys always tell me about having suicidal thoughts, and I just don't always think. Like, I mean, I've never knock on wood. I haven't had to, you know, put any of my patients from my my practice 
I haven't had to 5150 anyone. They've all, you know, we've managed through safety checks and safety plans and, you know, all those check-ins and things. It's worked. So anyway, th those are my thoughts. So I hope that that helps clear that up. Okay, question number three. It says, hi, Katie. How do you meet your need in comfort and reassurance? And why can one crave it? I have a strong feeling that I want someone to comfort me. Tell me everything is going to be okay. Validate my feelings. Take care of my responsibilities. I don't have this feeling in my day-to-day -day life, but when my mind is unoccupied, I wish for it so badly, especially at night. Interestingly, in real life, I normally feel awkward if someone tries to comfort me, and I don't know whether I'm capable of accepting it. So it's very interesting. I usually resort to observing fictional characters, like in movies or books, comforting each other, especially if one of them is in a vulnerable state or a breakdown. I suspect I also experience this breakdown or strong emotions through character. How do I learn how to accept others' attempts to comfort me? Why does this happen? I have an emotionally supportive family. They just don't know what to do with their emotions and are too anxious. Thanks for all that you do. Now, there's a follow-up question to this as well, but I want to get into this first because it was so interesting to me that this person said, I have an emotionally supportive family. They just don't know what to do with their emotions and are too anxious. So my hypothesis with this, and you might not like this answer, is I don't think your family supported you in the way that you needed, meaning sure they tried their best like I've talked about this a lot of times especially when like the emotionally unavailable mother emotionally unavailable father and parents you know all those issues I've talked about it on YouTube a ton I've talked about it on TikTok the just because you know they do their best or we think they like are emotionally supportive in some ways doesn't mean that it was what we needed like it can look good on paper we can have parents that like help us with our homework and make sure we have lunch and they take us to school and we go to a private school and we have a good home and everything's so lovely and you know but they don't so they don't give you that emotional support that you're needing meaning maybe even though your mom would come in and be like how was your day and like listen to you there was never any advice or never any back rubbing or hugging or um don't worry it'll be okay like the stuff that you're talking about the comfort and reassurance maybe even if they did give us what we thought we needed, right? Maybe every so often our mom would give us a nice, good hug. Maybe it was not received in the way we wanted, meaning maybe that's at that time, that's not what we wanted. It was like always off. Does that make sense? It's almost like the time we, I don't know the best way to describe this, but it's like for hours and hours and hours, we're asking for a round peg, okay? For this round hole, right? Round peg, round hole. We're asking for it, we're asking for it nobody gives it nobody and then our mom comes up with a square and tries to just put it there and we're like that doesn't work that's not what I needed and then we're like well okay well then I'll get the square okay square mom you had the square and she tries to shove the round peg in I know that's a horrible analogy but it's the best way I can describe to, to say that like it's not that they didn't try it just wasn't what we wanted and needed at that moment and therefore we can go our whole life not quite feeling reassured not quite feeling comforted because we just never got what we needed. And there's nothing like, I, I think a lot of people assume that like emotionally absent or uh, emotionally abusive parents always are terrible, terrible people. And it means that their our house was in disarray and things were chaotic. Sure, that's the case in some percentage of people. But a lot of people's parents are like, 
high functioning, like doctors, lawyers have these really crazy jobs, you know, maybe they're, you know, a nurse and they're helping save all these lives and all oh, our parents are so amazing. And like I said, we have these beautiful homes and any clothes we want and blah, blah, blah. It can look all good from the outside. And maybe there's not even necessarily yelling. It's just they're absent. It's the lack of what we needed that is so harmful. And so I know that's a long description or long explanation for this, but I feel like that is my hypothesis as to why you're craving it because you haven't gotten the flavor that you'd asked for. It's like, we're still looking to fill that. We still are sitting with that, that, you know, triangle hole, let's say, and no one's coming to it. We got square, we got round. It's just not working. And so we can look to others to validate it and to need it. And the reason I would also like on the same hypothesis, the reason that we don't know how to even accept it is because it's never been given to us in the flavor that we want. And when someone does that, we're like, Ooh, this is uncomfortable. I'm not sure how to react. What do I do? My urge is to pretend it's not a big deal. Pull away because I've never been given it before. Right. It's like, we've always been pet one way. I was just talking to a member of our community the other day, like always being pet one way. And then we all know how uncomfortable cats get. If you pet them the other way, the wrong way of their hair, they're like, it's like that, right? We've always been pet this way, even though it wasn't what we needed and it wasn't what we wanted. Then we're pet the other way. It's super uncomfortable. We're not even sure if that's right, but it is, but it just feels so awkward and so different. And we have nothing to compare it to. And so, my my thoughts about this is, or my encouragement, I guess, or my advice is to find a therapist who works in attachment and possibly some inner child slash trauma work. I know you all just shuddered. I promise it's not that terrible. But I think processing through the things that maybe you didn't get that you needed and finding ways to better communicate that and dealing with some some attachment issues and this need for comfort and reassurance, which we all have, by the way, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just sometimes when we haven't gotten it for so long, the craving is just so intense. Um, Having someone to talk that through, figure out what the root of it is for you, where it comes from, and working to heal that can be real. I think that'll be where you find the most benefit. And there, there are books about emotionally absent mother. I love that book. I think it's like, uh, forget her name, Lori someone L-O-R-I is the author. It's a blue cover. It's in my Amazon uh, shop. So you can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It'll be in there. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. And there's also one for unavailable fathers if you find that to be the root there. Um, There was a comment on this and and it says, I I know um, I want my therapist to be there for me. I find myself wanting to stay bad or shock my therapist because I'm afraid of losing her when I get better. <clears throat> Any ideas what I can make to what I can do to make this urge go away? Because I'm the same way, another person. I just get obsessed with wanting people to check in with me, but then I'm filled with anxiety if someone ever does. What are the things that might cause this? Again, it's not understanding, not ever having any examples or experience with someone comforting us and giving us the attention that we want. And then it's super uncomfortable, so we don't even know how to react. And healing the real reason that we feel so anxious, which is kind of part of that inner child stuff, um, will will help. But to the point of wanting your therapist to stay around, I have a ton of videos about attachment to your therapist. Just look up YouTube Katie Morton Attachment Therapist. 
<clears throat> it'll come up because the thing about a therapist that's so interesting is that relationship is unlike any any other. And if we grew up not feeling seen or heard, no one actually taking our uh, pain seriously, or maybe completely neglected, or maybe we were abused in some way. Um, I know emotional neglect is abuse, but I'm just saying like physical sexual abuse. If any of those things were going on to us when we were a child or when we were growing up, and we've always just felt like I'm not good enough, because along with abuse, we know comes that shame, embarrassment, and guilt. If we're feeling all of those things, and then we stumble upon, we get into therapy because shit's not right and we don't feel good. So our therapist, they validate us. They show up for me on time consistently. Wow. They ask how I'm doing and they actually listen. We get possibly a lot of the things we never were able to get from our parents or caregivers, right? And so then we start to view our therapist as our parent or caregiver. And then the idea of therapy ending or our therapist uh, leaving or something can be super, super triggering. And so what I would encourage you to do is to talk with them about it because there's it's actually great information with when it comes to your therapeutic work together because it helps you, it helps your therapist know what to dig into, because again, back to like that trauma work or the inner child work, or maybe it's some deep false beliefs about like, I'm not worth it. And your therapist is like challenging that and showing you maybe you are that it, it kind of uh, shakes us to our core and can cause us to want to like attach. I've talked about in the past, like the attachment with your therapist is like you had this void in yourself from people in your life not being there in the way you needed for so long. And then we find someone who looks like they're kind of doing that, maybe, possibly, and want to shove them in that hole and fill the void and be like, okay, well, all better versus doing that work, which is me filling, me being the patient, me filling that void myself with my own self-talk, my own sense of worthiness, the way that I um, interact with the world and what I what I say to myself and others and how I allow myself to feel the feelings. I know they're uncomfortable, but doing that work will allow that hole to 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 close up essentially, because it's really just a wound, and we have to heal it. Um, I hope that makes sense. I know it's a little abstract. Some of these answers over the you know we've been doing this podcast for a year, so some of the answers over the years of like I know they're maybe hard to grasp. So let me know if this is something that you know doesn't really quite make sense. But that's that's that, and also. Um, I do want to throw out there that when it comes to that first part of the question, not being able to have friends comfort and reassure you, I, I would, I still firmly believe if I was a betting person, I bet it's the parents not being able to give you what you needed when you needed it. But I've also had uh, patients in the past talk about how they didn't feel like they ever had any friends, anybody outside of their family offer what they needed. And so it was those people outside of the family circle that they found the hardest to allow themselves to be open, honest, and and receive the comfort and reassurance that they were really needing. So that could be part of it too. And to that, I would tell you to talk about that in therapy and slowly expose yourself to it, you know, with some of those like ways to calm our system being like, you know, it's okay. They're here for me. I'm giving myself an opportunity to have a different experience. You know, we can do some of that stuff too. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And I just want to make sure I answered all those questions. Losing her. Yep. And then checking on me. Okay, cool. Number four. Hi, Katie. What can we do when the thought of having to calm yourself is triggering? I love this question. 
You talk so much about being able to soothe yourself. I do. But what if you associate being calm with having to be compliant and quiet? So when you're already triggered, thinking about calming yourself down easily goes the wrong way and you end up thinking that you have... um, that you have to calm yourself because you were a bad person otherwise, that people uh, want you to not speak up about what was triggering to you and that you are to perform and not have emotions. What a great question. There were some others um, under this, some comments similar, like, you know, when their parents were abusive and they'd cry, they'd be like, if you're crying, I'll give you something really to cry about, like the threats and the, you know, shut up and sit down kind of things that abusive parents do to us. So I'm so glad you asked because recently, probably like four or five months ago, my friend Alexa, who's a trauma specialist, was telling me that having someone who has been repeatedly traumatized, meaning we have complex PTSD, telling them that they need to come up with a safe place to go. We, we do that in therapy a lot, right? We're going to do this exposure work, or we're going to do this EMDR or something. And we're like, I want you to go to a safe place, a place where you feel really safe and calm. Well, to a traumatized person, a place that's safe and calm equals vulnerable, equals easy, easily harmed again, right? And if our whole goal through our PTSD response, meaning like hypervigilance, avoidance of things that remind us of it, flashbacks, all of this is to keep us on high alert so that we don't put ourselves in that kind of situation again. Therefore, the act of like going to a safe place or trying to feel calm, super fucking triggering because we're like, oh my God, now I'm just setting myself up for more trauma and more upset and our nervous system and our brain is like, no, 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 this is worse, right? And so... What I will tell all of you out there to try and something that Alexa told me is a safe place doesn't work because it's not safe. It's actually let's find something neutral. So instead of thinking like, I'm gonna have to soothe my system, I got to calm down. How about instead we think, what can I do that just feels a little better right now? What would feel good? Ask yourself that and And you might not always have the answers and that's okay. But here are some ideas to get you started. It might feel good to shake it out. It might feel good to cry, scream, put on music really loud. Might feel good. Might want to dance it out. Might want to call somebody and cry about it. We might want to write something out really. I do that sometimes when I'm really mad. I write it out. And that is soothing. I think the way that I, what I would encourage you all to do is to redefine what calm and soothing means for you. Because too often we think of calm and soothing as like doing some belly breathing and breathing. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to, you know, just relax and lay down. Who? No. Sometimes that makes us again, feel vulnerable, feel like we're going to be traumatized again. And our, our limbic system that houses our amygdala, it's like our fire alarm and our brain is like sounding. It's like, no, 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 no. Wah, wah, wah. Stop doing that. Right. Um, So, sorry, I've got a tickle here on my face. Um, So we might have to redefine soothing and calming because soothing and calming might just mean what feels good to do right now. If you're triggered, what feels good? Does it feel good to like scream? Maybe it does. Does it feel good to like walk real quickly around the block? Maybe it does. You know, let's think of it that way because it's not really calm. It's more like doing what would make you feel better. And I'm going to put this out there because I know a lot of you already thought about this and that no, that does not mean unhealthy coping skills. That does not mean, you know, 
forcing dissociation or allowing dissociation to happen. It doesn't mean, you know, eating disorder behavior, self-injury, suicidal thoughts and actions, things like that doesn't mean alcohol, drug abuse. No, no, no. I mean, what, what would help us feel better? Does that help? Maybe that does, maybe it doesn't. But I think sometimes we have to redefine it. And instead of thinking of things as like safe, calm, soothing, we have to think of things as like neutral, not as shitty. Maybe it makes me feel a little less bad. And those are okay. Again, it's like we talk about bridge statements all the time. We can have bridge actions, right? We don't have to go from like, oh my God, I'm triggered. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it happen that we all have all of a sudden have to be like, oh, I'm triggered. I'm going to, uh, you know, reach out to a friend and talk this through. I don't even do that, you guys. I can't make that jump that quickly. Sometimes I do, especially if I feel like a friend really gets it or like I can call my mom or my therapist or something. But most of the time it's me doing what I need to do that's not harmful. So sometimes that's going for a walk. Sometimes that's just driving in the car with music on a little bit. Sometimes it's shaking out. Sometimes it's yoga. Sometimes it's a shower. There's a lot of different things I do. Um, Sometimes it's writing. Like I said, when I get really angry, I'll write out those, you know, like son of a fucking bitch. I'll do that. Tear it up. Um, Yeah. So maybe just consider some things that when you would be triggered, if you're able to look back on the last time you felt triggered and what would just make you feel less shitty? Let's think about that. Even if it's just incremental, does that feel better? Does that make you think it's not as like doubly triggering, right? Because even though the goal is to get your nervous system, your amygdala to stop sounding the alarm so that our hypervigilance and our trigger, that experience of being triggered goes down and is soothed. Maybe it's that language or that thought process that is even more triggering. And someone in the comments had talked about how, you know, that I'll give you something to cry about. And so that like breathing, her therapist has told her or someone told her to breathe through the upset and she just feels like it's that happening again. So what if instead, you know, we allow ourselves like in that scenario, I would encourage you to cry more, to scream more, to express that emotion more. I think we think of calm and soothing in one way. And it's okay to redefine it for what works for us. It's calm and soothing is more like the end goal. I don't really care how you get there as long as it's not by doing something that's harmful to yourself. Does that make sense? Let me know if it doesn't. Okay. Question number five. Hi, Katie. How do I come clean about secretly recording our sessions to my therapist? I started recording them because I don't remember a thing about our sessions due to intense social anxiety. That's very common. Also being gaslit by my parents for years, I am I constantly question my sanity whenever I express my emotions. I want to make sure that I'm not crazy. So I replay the sessions when I'm more calm and I validate myself. I love this. I didn't ask for permission because I was worried that my therapist would think I'm crazy. They wouldn't. Plus, I thought therapy is about me and my privacy only. So it didn't matter that I recorded them. It actually doesn't, but okay, we'll get into it anyway. Yet I saw some people said that a therapist could terminate therapy because this is an intrusion of her privacy. Now I'm mortified and so ashamed. I want to come clean and apologize sincerely, but I am seriously afraid. Any input is appreciated. Thank you. First of all, yes, if we could look back and or we could go back in time, I would encourage you to tell your therapist that you want to, and I 100% think they'd be fine with it. I, back in the day, for anybody who doesn't realize, when you're in therapy, when you're in training to become a therapist, 
you have to do some, or I had to as part of one of my classes and part of my like license. I don't know if it's part of my licensure or just one of my classes, but either way, um, I had to record a bunch of the sessions. And obviously the patient had to say it was okay. And we had to, you know, uh, record i think it was audio and video and we had to set it up and do it in this particular room and then i had to watch them back so that i could learn and it is really helpful to have that and i think if you'd asked your therapist about it they would have said of course sure do you want audio do you want video you know what do you want to do blah 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 blah. so i would start by explaining to your therapist why this was your why you wanted to do this in the first place i would say something along the lines of you know let's say it was me when you come into session and be like, you know, hi, uh, hi, Katie, I just wanted to tell you and I, I know this is gonna sound crazy. Um, but you know, I have such bad social anxiety, I don't remember our sessions. And I, I should have asked, but I recorded some of our sessions so I could play them back. Do you mind if I do that? I should have asked ahead of time. Your therapist is gonna say, cool, yo, do it again. No problem. I like almost 100% guarantee. I mean, I would have no issue with it personally. It's more, again, it's about your privacy and you're the one that holds the the confidentiality. I wouldn't see it as a, a encroaching on my privacy, but I would like to know just so I know, you know? I mean, especially, you know, in California, you can't record someone without their consent is like the law, but no therapist is going to take you to task on that. Um, that's how I would, I would say, and I don't, I mean, I understand feeling like mortified and ashamed. I mean, like, why did I do this? We've all done stuff where we're like, it would have been easier if I just told them up front. We've all been in situations like that. Don't think that, you know, that what you did is like super crazy and weird. I've had a lot of patients want to record them. I've had to do it for my own stuff and patients have allowed that. I mean, Yes, therapy is confidential, but if it helps for you to record them so you can play things back and you can remember, that's not a bizarre ask. I've had patients ask for that before and I've said yes. I used to have even a little recorder I let one of my patients borrow for a while. It was like an MP3 thing. It's like old school before phones could just record things, but it was a little like skinny thing and I would let them just record and they would take it home with them and listen. Um, and then we they'd come back the next week and I'd delete that last one and re-record another. So um yeah, that's how I would say it, you know, start with the explanation. Like, as you know, I have such bad social anxiety, but it's really hard for me to remember sessions. And I recorded a few of them and I realized I should have asked you and I'm so sorry, you know, it can come out. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to. And, and then afterwards I thought maybe you'd be upset and I just, it's just really helpful. That's the, that's the avenue we're going to take, right? Because that's really what it is. I can't remember what happens. I black out because of my social anxiety gets so high. I like, oh, can't remember. And so I've been recording them and I, I didn't think about it being bad. And now I'm worried it's bad. And I just want to tell you, I, you know, if, again, if I was a betting person, I know I say this a lot in the podcast, but if I was a betting woman, I would bet that your therapist is going to say, oh yeah, of course. Thank you for letting me know though. I do appreciate that. It's nice to know it's happening, but I understand. And yeah, we can do that because I would have no problem. So I don't think they're going to terminate that. I can't, I don't even... In, I know it's California and I'm in the States and I'm not sure where this person is from, but I don't even believe that that would be a reason that I could terminate a patient. Like there are some loose like ethical and especially legal boundaries around what, what we can and cannot terminate for. Does that make sense? So anyway, those are my thoughts. Hopefully my input is helpful. 
Okay, question number six says, hi, Katie, could you talk about the stigma around suicide and grieving deaths caused by suicide? I've recently lost two friends to suicide within the past few weeks. I'm so sorry. The rates, I know they're so high. And I've noticed a lot of people aren't even very understanding. What? They say things like, how could anyone that young do something like that? Oh, people are so ignorant. They have their whole life ahead of them. At the same time, they're asking me why I didn't do anything to help them. Are they fucking serious? I'm trying my best to defend my friends and educate about suicide when possible, but it's honestly weighing down on me when I'm trying to cope with these losses and my own guilt about the situations. Any advice? I have a lot of advice. First of all, I have a video about losing someone to suicide, and I think that's what it's called, just losing someone to suicide. Um, So you can look that up on YouTube, and hopefully that's helpful a little bit there with your own process. Now... to get into the stigma. So I don't know what it is about people and the word suicide, even YouTube, I fought with them over the years about like, uh, monetization and ability to have videos on the platform, because things would get flagged, and I'd have issues with it. And now they're like, okay, well, it's educational, so you can keep it on the platform. But nobody wants to monetize against that brands don't want to be associated with it. And I'm like, but it's so common. These thoughts are so common. Like, it's just so frustrating to me. And I talked about it um, in a past video recently about like crisis and why people replace crisis. Are you in crisis with, are you having suicidal thoughts? I think that they've done that because people are afraid to say that or, or I don't know, you know, I don't know. We're hypothesizing, we're talking it out. But I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if any of my videos would help educate them. It's also not your duty to educate people about it. I love that you're doing it, but some people, also, I, then I just get pissy with people because I'm like, how dare they talk to you that way? That's just so rude. And when it comes to people who are suicidal, if anybody out there is struggling, let me know if what I'm saying is off base at all. But what I've heard from my patients and all of you over the years is that if we are really struggling, it's like we can't, I imagine it like a dark hole, like our depression and suicidal thoughts take all hope and help away. So we feel hopeless, we feel helpless, we feel like we can't see out, we're caught in this loop of like negative thoughts and they never get better and things are so bad and we like, we can't get out. And we spiral into what I've always deemed the pit of despair, right? We just get in this place where we're like, nothing's ever going to get better. I just want the pain to stop. I just want to stop feeling this shitty. We can just, that's how it can feel. However, everyone out there that I've talked to and my patients alike who've struggled even if we try to push you away, it's actually very helpful to have friends that check in and just show up for us. Meaning we can't make people get better, right? I don't know if you remember that. Sometimes I think people forget, but we can't make people get better. No amount of shouting, uh, talking to, even as a therapist, right? There's no amount of like 50, 150s that are going to keep my patient safe if we're being honest. If they have that's their goal and they want to take their own life, that's something that they can do and I can't stop it, right? I can't make them want to get better. So with that in mind, we can't make them get better, but we can be there for a friend. So we can check in, we can call, we can uh, show up with some, you know, let's say Chinese takeout or pizza or whatever. Hey, I just wanted to hang out and mind watching some Netflix with me or whatever. We can just do stuff like that. We can ask them how we can help if they want to something, then they can ask for something. But that's really all we can do is just be there and check in. And I know for a lot of people, it feels really helpless. And then, you know, then there's guilt, there can be guilt associated with the loss, like I should have done more, I should have. I know that those feelings are very real, and I'm not here to invalidate them. But what I am here to tell you or show you is an alternative view, which is, 
I did what I could. And I'm just really sad that it wasn't enough. You know, because we can't make people get better. And I know it sucks. And I don't want to downplay this or have you think that I'm not taking it seriously, because I am. It's, it's just that fact that we cannot make people get better. And it is sad when the, the help that we could offer wasn't enough. As a therapist, I've felt that many times for many different reasons, whether it's suicide or whether it's like, you know, eating disorder relapse, you can't make people get better. And it sucks to be on the sidelines watching it being like, but I, ugh, you know, you just you feel helpless. And I that feeling is so uncomfortable. So I understand. Um, but those that's just kind of my advice is and then as far as the coping, okay, so the coping with the loss. Again, I have a video losing someone to suicide, I highly encourage you to watch. Because suicide such a a complicated loss. Um, but as someone who's even just grieved loss of people in my life, the best thing you can do is talk about it with people who understand. If you can find some groups or in our own community, feel free to talk about it. So you can get some of that validation, that understanding, that support, and let yourself feel it. It's okay to feel all those feelings. We talk about the stages of grief, but there's kind of like they're all over the place. They don't go one, two, three, four, you know, you don't go through five and you're like, I'm bam, free, freedom, feel better. Um, we kind of go back and around and like ziggy zaggy. So it's like some days you'll be really angry. Then other days you'll, you know, you'll want to bargain still. You're like, oh man, if I could have just, then this could have, oh, if I could get more time with, my, you know, we can think all those things and we can be depressed for a while and that's okay too. But what I really hope you're hearing is like, it's okay to feel how you feel. I want you to give yourself the time and space to do it. These other people asking you terrible questions and not being helpful and being super stigmatizing and ridiculous, I give you full permission to not talk to them for a while. That's not helpful. It's not helpful for you. It's not helpful for your process or what you're going through. It's honestly not helpful for anybody. And if it's helpful for them, they can talk amongst their, you know, ignorant selves and fucking figure it out or whatever. Um, you know, you can send them some of my videos or other videos online that you find are helpful to educate. But again, not your problem, not your responsibility. I appreciate you. But right now, it's like you're having your own pain and loss. And it's not up to you to, to make them understand, you know. And how dare they say anything like, you know, didn't help them enough or whatever. It's like, ugh, ugh. I just want to punch him in the throat. So those are my thoughts. I'm I'm really sorry for your loss. I'm sorry that, that two of your close friends didn't feel like they had another way to deal and to cope and just felt like they just wanted the pain to stop. I'm sorry that you had to go through them. Sorry they had to go through it. Suicide just, I mean, loss in general is just, it fucking sucks. And I'm so sorry. But I hope my video and this video are helpful. Let's move on to question number seven. And that question says, hi, Katie, I don't have anyone to share my feelings. No friends, no therapist. I left my therapist because our conversation was way too shallow. Totally get it. I don't want to watch TV anymore in my excessive free time. I just want to have someone to talk to in a deeper way. I totally feel that. I'm sick of reading a book or painting a mandala to relax. My life has been too boring. Also, I feel trapped. I'm studying a major I don't like and lost all motivation to study. On one hand, it seems my way to freedom, financial independence. But on the other hand, I think I will never be a good professional in the field. Also, I'm struggling with online classes a lot, aren't we all? To sum it up, I feel like shit, demotivated, lonely, and lost. What should I do? I'm going to be honest here, and you're probably not going to like this answer. But well, first of all, I want to validate the fact that I think a lot of people are feeling this way. 
this past year has been a fucking terrible shitstorm and it can feel terrible. I know some people are having a good time and they're doing well and they're like, my social anxiety is nil and I'm fucking, you know, live in lodge. Good for you. That's awesome. I'm happy for you. Wonderful. But for a vast majority of people, it's been a shitstorm and we are exhausted and we've been in our stress response for a really long time. And so there's depression, there's anxiety, there's increased suicidal thoughts like that last question. That's unfortunately what's been going on and it's been horrible and everybody's feeling demotivated. Like I was saying at the top of this uh, podcast, I personally have been having a really hard time the past couple of weeks and it, I think I'm just feeling completely overwhelmed and frustrated. And then also like the little inner child of me that when I feel like more is being asked of me than I can do, she throws tantrums. So part of Katie, because it's, it's like inner child, but it's me. Part of me does this thing where it's like, I don't want to and I'm not gonna and you can't make me. And if you've ever met a stubborn child, you've never met a child as stubborn as me. And so that is how I react. And so anyway, I just want you to know that I understand where you're at. And I understand that like ugh, feeling, I've been feeling it. But my advice and I'm even going to take my own advice, is to call your therapist. Not that therapist, because you didn't like that therapist. Let's get a new one. Let's get one that's not so shallow, so you have a space to talk about those deep issues and those deep feelings. And just have, I don't know why I am the same as you, and I I just love, like, revel in those deeper conversations with, like, deeper meaning and really digging into something. Oh, those are so fulfilling. So I totally get your need for that. And finding someone a clinician who can meet you there, I think is really key to your healing. But on the second part, so find another therapist. And my second advice is what you're expressing to me here sounds a little bit like depression, like not feeling motivated, not liking anything. You know, you're, you're lost in your major. You don't want to watch TV anymore. You don't want to do this anymore. You don't like any of these things. I don't like anything. Nothing feels good. I'm just frustrated. I feel like shit. It might be helpful to Obviously, along with seeing a therapist, maybe see a psychiatrist, maybe an antidepressant would be beneficial to you. Again, I'm not a doctor, but that's something that you could talk to a doctor about to see if that's helpful, because feeling this way, you know, demotivated, lonely, lost, and just frankly, like shit, it's not helping and it's not making anything any easier. And it's making you feel like even the major that you're studying, you're not going to be good at it. It's like taking away any last little slivers of joy you had after you know, 2020 and now into 2021. If you had anything left, it's like trying to snuff that out. And I want you to get extra support before that happens. Um, yeah, and I'm glad you have the free time because when you do find a therapist, maybe that's something you ask about is like working in a workbook because you can say like, hey, I have time on my hands. I'd like to, to have, you know, some more work to do at home. There are tons of wonderful workbooks. I have a lot of them listed in my Amazon shop if you're looking for things, you know, it's again, it's amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash forward slash Katie Morton. Um, you can find some of them listed there if that's helpful. Um, but yeah, those are, that's my advice. And again, just to validate we're it, it's, you're not alone. A lot of us are feeling that way. And I'm so sorry, man, it's been such a shit storm, but therapists is so, so helpful and possibly medication. If, that, if you're open to it, you know, if we think it could work, again, talk to your doctor. But I think that that's all that will pull us out because, oh, man, it's been rough. Okay, let's move into question number eight. And that is, hey, Katie, do you have any suggestions for someone who struggles with imposter syndrome? 
I have been at the same job for a long time and get nothing but positive feedback. Yet I have this overwhelming fear that I will be found out someday and they will realize that I don't know what I'm doing. It's even worse now with remote work and I don't get regular in-person feedback. I love your videos. They've helped tremendously. And someone else added to add on to this. What about those that have imposter syndrome as soon as they graduate and are looking for a job, yet the imposter syndrome keeps them from applying, telling them they aren't smart enough or will mess up at the job somehow or that no one will want to help and they are expected to just know everything right off the bat. Some of this can be anxiety driven because of the fear of the unknown. Exactly. Okay, so couple things to address here. First of all, if you don't know what imposter syndrome is, it's essentially when we feel like we aren't qualified for whatever we're doing. It's I don't know the exact definition. I can actually probably look it up really quick here for you because to make sure I'm not, you know, not misrepresenting it. Okay. It says imposter syndrome can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of their competence. So meaning it's almost like I would call imposter syndrome like a firmly held delusion where we're like, you know, no matter what anybody says to me, I still feel like I'm not, I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not good at this. And that can perpetuate for you know, for a long time. And there are people in the comments saying they'd been at a job for like 20 years and they still felt that way. So know that you're not alone if you've experienced this. I've experienced it. I still experience it sometimes when like uh, organizations will ask for me to come and answer some of their questions or to give this talk for these people or that or whatever. And I'm like, who am I? What the fuck do I know? Jeez, you know, and, and I have to, and here's, and here comes the advice about imposter syndrome it's all about how we talk to ourselves. And I, if you guys don't know me, uh, haven't you know been following for a long time, I definitely am more on the anxious side of life. Like I tend to worry. I have, uh, you know, like intrusive thoughts, uh, ruminating thoughts. And I've gotten better at managing it with the help of a therapist over the years um, and just a lot of personal work. But the thing that has helped me the most is that self-talk. And that's why I harp on it all the time. I know people are like, oh, I'm so sick of that. And you always talk about that, but it is fucking life-changing. So if, when it comes to imposter syndrome, it, it's, it can be simple changes. So when we find ourselves being like, oh, am I even good enough for that? We can instead think and say to ourselves, is that even good enough for me? And I know we might not believe it right away. And so that's why if that kind of, and I've even, there's a, I don't know if she's a psychologist or therapist on TikTok. She was talking about this just like a few months ago. And I saw it and was like, exactly. Like, it's like, she took the words out of my mouth. It was so perfect. Um, I forget. It's not, I don't think it's Kreft's couch. It's somebody else that I follow over there. Anyway, it's not important. And I'm sorry that I'm not able to link out to her. I forget her username because it's not her name. Anyway, um, those changes in our thoughts. So first of all, if we're having these shitty thoughts, like who am I? I don't know what I'm doing. This is stupid. They're going to figure out one day I'm going to be found out that I don't know what the fuck. Okay, write these thoughts down. These are common thoughts. You put them in your question. They clearly are flipping, you know, around in your head day after day. And like they're living in there rent free. Why? Why are we allowing that? It's not helpful. Write them down. And then you knew this was coming. Good old bridge statements. What could we say that maybe isn't positive, but isn't as negative. So could it be something like, you know, it is possible. It's possible that I'm like only partially bad at my job. It is possible I might know a few things. 
right? And then maybe we can look for some evidence, right? Then we can kind of dig in and be like, well, you know, Sally from, you know, the other department did come to me for that help. Or, you know, because you do have this evidence. So it's like, they have said I did a, a good job at that. So it's possible that I'm not as shitty at it. And I know these all seem like very small, very like not big movements in their, our thoughts, but that's why it works. We can't do, the, the reason imposter syndrome exists is because even though people around us outside of ourselves tell us we're doing a great job, we don't believe it because those people, and essentially when we have imposter syndrome, we're like, oh, those people can't be trusted. They don't really know. I know. I know that I don't know. And so that's why this work has to come from within. We have to slowly shift so that our brain doesn't immediately be like, well, that's not true. We can't go to the positive. We're like, but I'm amazing at my job. I am fucking good. No, our brain's like, no, you're not. And we look over here at the, you know, falsely held belief and thought we've had for years. And it's like, no, you're going to be found out that you don't know what you're doing. You don't actually deserve this job. I don't know how you got it. So we have all those thoughts. So I want, that's why we have to slowly build them. So it's like, it's possible. I'm open to the, the idea that maybe I don't have all the information. I'm open to the idea that that I could have gotten hired for this job because they at least thought I was good at it, right? We're just going to move it over. And I would just encourage you to just pay attention to when you're having these shitty thoughts about yourself and your situation, pay attention to that so that we can move incrementally into a better place. And I also have a video about imposter syndrome. Um, and I, I want to say it's just, it's called imposter syndrome. I bet if you get on YouTube and just look up Katie Morton, uh, imposter, imposter syndrome, it'll come up. Um, but hopefully that's helped too. Cause I know that I did that with, uh, an, a friend of mine from years ago, um, Alex Danis, and she, she is a geneticist. She's wonderful. Anyway, I did that video with her, I believe, I remember her, she brought it up to me and wanted me to talk about it. Um, so yeah, hopefully there's some helpful tools. But I think, you know, paying attention to those thoughts is going to be key because we have to start separating thoughts from facts, right? Thoughts are not facts, they're just other thoughts. And so we can't, you know, we can't do that if we don't at least recognize that they're happening. And, you know, then we'll just start slowly moving them over. And this helps us to kind of develop a new a new and more healthy script to have running in our brain that we are good, that we, you know, that we, we are uh, worthy of this job, that, that we are qualified and all of that. But it just takes a little time. So give yourself a patience as you use those bridge statements. And again, you know, once we have a couple of bridge statements that have turned into maybe more of our common thoughts, then we're going to take another step further, right? And move them farther away from the negative and into the positive. So a next step from a bridge statement would be something like, uh, let's say we're like, I'm open to the possibility that that maybe I don't have all the information. Then the next uh, bridge statement would be something like, you know, it is possible that the person who hired me does know what person should get this job. It's possible that they did know that, you know. So and then then from there, it'd be like, I'm open to the to the thought that when they hired me, they could have thought I knew what I was doing. Right. See, so I know those don't even sound that much better, but they're so much better than, you know, I'm going to be found out. I don't even know what I'm doing. I've, I don't even know how I got this job. I'm just a fucking loser. Like, it's so much better than that. So keep working. 
it does get better. And I can tell you from personal experience that it totally does. And it's just a lot. Now I, I clip it more quickly. So when someone asks for me to do something and I'm like, what the fuck do I know? That's like my automatic thought. My thought back to it to correct it is no, you know, you've been educating online for like 11 years, dude. Like you might know some things. You've also written two books. You, you read a lot of shit. You, you read so much you get tired about from reading. So maybe, maybe check that, Katie. Check your facts, right? And you can do that for you as well. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. My husband was sexually abused by a family friend multiple times as a young child and doesn't remember how long it went on. He only has talked about it twice over the three years that we've been together. I'm the only person who knows about this. I know it affects him to this day, but he's never sought help for it. It's very, unfortunately, it's very common for, for everybody, but especially men. I want him to get help, but it's not my place to tell him. How can I approach this gently and show him that it could be good to deal with? Thanks for all that you do. Well, yeah, of course. I, I, I picked this question because, well, first of all, I just scrolled and then it was on the screen. And I thought this is a good thing to address because for some reason, and I've had a lot of patients in my office, um, older adult men that I'm the first person that they tell about this. And unfortunately, we talk about sexual abuse and even sexual assault and rape as if, and this is, I'm just as guilty, but even when I think about it, you know, my automatic thought is that it's a woman. Now, is it percentage-wise more likely that it's a female? Yes, but I would even argue that that might not be the case because men don't tend to report it as much. I all remember I remember Terry Crews coming out uh, during the Me Too movement and talking about someone grabbing his junk in front of his wife at an event um, and ha- how helpless he felt. And if you know who Terry Crews is, you can just Google him if you don't. But he's on like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and he's in a ton of films and he's fucking yoked. He's a huge dude. But he felt helpless. And I, I really... As much as it sickens me to think that that happened to him, and I hate that some that a woman did that, I I'm so glad that he came out and shared his story, and that it was him. Like the fact that just I felt like hope. My hope was that that would validate a whole swath of 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 men that are going through something or have gone through something like that. So I know that you know the person who asked this question. Like I don't think your husband probably listened to my podcast, but hopefully men out there know that they can be abused too. It's not just females. You can be sexually assaulted, raped, um, and abused. And we need to talk about that more. And so I'm, I pledge to try to mention that and talk about that more and make sure that I don't use certain pronouns. It's more inclusive, right? So anyways, just putting that out there. Now, when it comes to our husbands, so I'll even, um, share a little bit of my personal, uh, conversations with Sean over the years because when I met Sean so Sean and I've been together since I was 24 and I'm 37 so 13 years so we've been together for a really long time and I again have been in therapy off and on forever and actually when I met him I was like in intense therapy because my dad was really sick and I I knew he was gonna die unfortunately or I suspected you know that like things were not going well and he was getting sicker and sicker and my mom was you know having a hard time and so all of that was just weighing on me and I was going to therapy twice a week and um I had asked him early on in our relationship because I was going to be a therapist, right? I was in graduate school. And I was like, hey, have you ever been in therapy? And he's like, oh, no, I haven't. You know, and I was like, well, you're opposed to it. And he's like, oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think therapy's great, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And we've talked about it forever. And then he was having a tough time, you know, as we all do. We go through these ebbs and flows. And, and I was like, maybe you should talk to somebody, you know, because I, 
I can't therapize you. Don't worry. It doesn't work like that. Right. We have another relationship. And he was like, of course, you know, and also if anybody watches Sean and I's podcast, you know, he's like, he's his own individual. Like I, I do not try to like help in that way. Cause that that's not who I am and it's not who he is or what our relationship is about. So anyway, that was back then. And I want to tell you, I think it was like six years later he started, but I couldn't push him to, you can't make it happen. Right. And I didn't want to push him so hard that I pushed him away from it. So I just brought it up periodically when he would be upset or talk about something being really stressful and like, oh, we're, cause we work a lot. And so that burden of that, you know, can be really heavy and he would talk about it and we would talk about it. And and I would say, well, I could, we could go to couples counseling. You know, I'd offer that up because maybe that won't be as scary. And he was like, no, no, I don't, I don't really know what I would talk about with regard to us. And I was like, we can talk about work and stuff thinking, you know, I'll go, you know, however I can assist. So anyways, then he ended up getting in his own therapy. But what I bring that up to say that the way to gently approach it is just like that. Like if he, I mean, he's only brought it up a couple of times. It's okay to bring it up. But the way to bring it up would be something we have to, we have to hug. We have to really like, you know, I talk about hug and roll. Like when we're setting boundaries, when it comes to this, we kind of have to like really hug on the person first. So when things are not emotionally charged and it's like an easy, no one else is around, you don't have anything you got to do, like maybe on a Saturday afternoon, you can mention to your husband and say, uh, and I, I, I know I always recommend this. People are like, I love that you like condone lying, but sometimes it's helpful. I think it's, it, it can be helpful for someone to know they're not alone right off the bat. So you could say something like, hey, my, one of my friends, one that he doesn't know very well, right? Like one of my friends, you know, was mentioning to me um, that their husband had started therapy and it's been really helpful. And and she's, she's going too, you know, you could say that. Um, I know in the past you talked to me about like childhood stuff that was really hurtful. You don't even have to name it. It's okay to just gloss over, you know. Um, I know you brought that stuff up a couple times. I'm happy to to help you find a therapist if you'd be open to that. I I mean, I think it could really be helpful. And if you have been in therapy yourself, you can say, you know, I've been in it and it's been really helpful. That's what I would I had said to Sean back in the day. It was like, you know, I've been in it for years and it's like life changing. And you can talk honestly about that process if if you've been in therapy yourself. Um but that's how I would approach the subject is kind of just, you don't have to call it anything. It's more just like, you know, I know you talked to me about the horrible things that happened when you were a kid. Like it could be helpful to talk to somebody about that. And, and if, if the answer is no, why would you bring that up? Ah, I, you know, I don't know your husband. I'm not sure how he'd respond, but if the reaction is, is bad, it's be like, Oh, okay. I won't, I won't bring it up again. You know, and we don't, we have to wait. And then if you're in therapy or you start therapy, it comes up again, you can bring it up like that, but it has to be very soft and we have to let them come around to it. And yes, I know it sucks. Oh my God, I know it sucks. I know you're like, please let someone help you. You've been through so much. You deserve that support. We all know we have to want to do it ourselves because even myself, like when I take breaks in therapy, like back at the beginning of the pandemic, I had no thing. I'd been in therapy for like eight months or nine months and at the beginning of therapy or at the beginning of the pandemic, when things were really shitty, I remember telling Sean, I was like, I just feel so like overcome with grief and I'm like overwhelmed. And, and I was writing the book and it was like horrible. It's like a total shitstorm. And Sean's like, we well, should probably call Jana. And I was like, I, I was trying to find another therapist. And like, I don't know, I hadn't heard back from that other one. And now she's not taking new patients. I was just frustrated. And it still took me like five months to get into. So it's called Jana again. But 
I'm just I'm just putting that out there because I even when we know and when we've done it, it still takes time. And yes, patience is, is hard to come by, but please just be patient. We just got to plant the seeds and hope that they grow. And I know it's horrible that we can't do it. But again, we can't going back to what I said earlier, we can't make people get better and do better. We can just support and guide and offer offer some of that help and assistance if they need it and when when it's requested. And then just love on him, you know. I'm sure you're a wonderful wife, but, you know, giving extra support. And if he wants to talk about it, letting him talk about it, all that stuff. Okay. But having your own experience, maybe even you starting therapy on your own or offering to go to couples counseling, that all that stuff can be helpful too. Those are also ways in. Okay. Moving on to question number 10 says, hi, Katie, can you talk more about setting boundaries within and outside of therapy? I have trouble setting boundaries and constantly feel like I'm going to overstep them if I'm not constantly worrying and super aware of everything I'm doing, saying, and thinking. Thanks for everything you do. I think maybe boundaries, maybe I've been talking about them too rigidly because boundaries are things that are are somewhat flexible, meaning that we can tell someone in our life like, hey, you know, when you talk to me that way, I find it really hurtful can you not use that word or whatever? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just pretending someone like called us a bitch or was really rude at work maybe. And they were just like, hey girl, um, cause I've had that happen to me at work. Has anybody else? It's really wonderful. It's one of my favorite things. No, but we can say like, hey, I don't appreciate you talking to me that way. That's a boundary, okay? And I know that sounds really aggressive to a lot of people, but I'm just giving it as an example because then, you know, the we could we could extrapolate from that and say, well, if you don't want people calling you, hey, girl, but then one of your girlfriends like, hey, girl, right? Because I have one of my friends, Allie always addresses me that way. And I love it. And it's one of my favorite things about her. So I would allow that to happen. But you could say if that boundary was rigid, it'd be like, that is wrong. And she can't do that either, right? Like, it's not okay. But it's just different. And with each person, it's different. And so what I encourage you to do when it comes to boundaries, and you that might be a horrible example, but I'm just giving it as to get us thinking about boundaries. We know when they've been crossed. We know when we feel super exhausted about by being around someone. We know um, when someone does something that just rubs us the wrong way, right? We have like a visceral reaction. Like our body and our brain tell us when things aren't right. And we just have to take note of that. So instead of feeling like you always have to be like hyper vigilant to it, like paying attention to everything and constantly, you know, worrying and being super aware, what if we just check in? Check in at the beginning of your day and check in with yourself at the end of your day. Take five minutes. Think about people you encountered and experiences you had and how did you feel? Like, are we avoiding picking up the phone, talking to that one friend because she just always oversteps boundaries and super rude and, you know, or it's like a one-sided relationship and we just aren't there for it. It's exhausting. Maybe she's a, you know, what we'd call like an emotional vampire, you know, our body and brain tell us we just have to listen. And so if we're taking that time to kind of check in just little bits, not all day, every day, we can learn from those experiences we had. Let's say one day I noticed, hey, you know, I spent like two hours with my friend. uh, I don't know, let's call her Julie. And I love Julie, but I just felt so exhausted afterwards. And so I kind of take note of that. Hey, after spending time with Julie, I feel exhausted. And then next time I feel exhausted again. Well, fuck, something's wrong. So then I think, hey, is Julie walking all over me? Is she asking me for more than I can give? Hmm, I think she is. How can I communicate that to her? And that's when we go into the boundary setting. So then it's like, 
hey, Julie, I'd love to see you today, but I just don't have time because I've got this big work project. How about, you know, we catch up next week, you know, and that's like, I can't do it now. Or, hey, Julie, I got to get off the phone or this FaceTime or I can't Zoom anymore. I've got to do X, Y, Z. We can just cut those things off and we can start, uh, you know, setting those up for ourselves. But don't feel like it's something where we have to be thinking and considering and being really consciously aware of all the time, because I feel like that just gets really, really overwhelming. Um, And I'm sorry, I take full responsibility. It's the way that I'm probably talking about it. So hopefully that helps with that. And also, if overstep, if you're always worried you're going to overstep them, that is actually not your problem. It's up to the people who have those boundaries to let you know. If they've let you know, then you already know what's okay and not okay. And if you need more clarification around that, it's perfectly healthy and natural to ask them for that. Like, let's say my mom had told me, you know, Katie, I don't like it when you do, uh, I don't know what she could say. Let's say, I don't like it, you know, when you text me after 9pm, that's my wind down time, and I'm getting ready for bed. And like, please don't do that. And then, you know, Sean and I are looking to buy a home in Austin right now. And so let's say at, at nine, 9.30, I find out that we got the house or something, which we haven't, unfortunately. Um, but then I would call her or text her and say, I know it's after nine and I'm sorry, but I wanted to tell you, blah, blah, blah. And it would be up, to, you know, that's, or I could say, the next day I could tell her and she's like, why didn't you call me last night? And I could say, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't sure because you said after nine, that's your time and I didn't want to overstep it. And then she could say something that's effective because again, boundaries are flexible. But hey, sometimes, you know, there's exciting things and I would want to know right away. So, you know, in that case, I would have loved to have known. In that just, we're learning, right? And it's, it's a process together and it's part of honestly any healthy relationship. Unfortunately, people have kind of gotten out of the habit of talking about these and setting these up and communicating things like that. But and again, that might not be a great example for you, but hopefully it helps you see that like it's a it's a learning process and a constant communication as we navigate it because it's it's not just a one sided thing that I'm only, the only one responsible for for not step overstepping their boundaries and and upholding mine and I'm doing all this. Mm-mm. We're just supposed to respect one another, check in with one another, and give each other an opportunity to communicate if they aren't being upheld. I hope that helps. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, boundaries can be sound more complicated than they really are. So hopefully that simplifies it. Fingers crossed. Okay. Final question. Question number 11 says, Hey Katie, I recently came out of a psychotic episode. However, I miss my voices. Even though I know um, it wasn't real and they were mean as hell for the most part, they usually are. It felt as though I had someone to talk to. I just want to know, is it normal to miss the voices and what do I do about it? I've even thought about stopping the medication to see if they'd come back. Ooh, yes. Okay. I, I love this question because I have a I have many patients over the years. If you guys don't know, when you talk about psychotic episodes, psychosis is something that can accompany a lot of different mental illnesses, meaning a lot of people consider it a part of schizophrenia, which it is. Uh, psychosis is delusions and hallucinations. Uh, hallucinations are when you see or uh, feel something that's not there. Uh, delusions are firmly held beliefs that no matter what anybody says or does, you believe them. Like, I believe Jesus is talking to me through that television and no amount of evidence is going to prove otherwise, right? That's just, that's, but that's what psychosis is, okay? So we have delusions delusions and hallucin- hallucinations. We can also have delusions of grandeur, like, I, I am Jesus, you know, we can believe things like that. So anyways, just so we know what psychotic episode is, it is very common when people have had psychosis oh 
sorry, before I get into that, psychosis can come along with things like bipolar disorder, depression. Um, there's even postpartum psychosis, like after we've given birth, because our the hormone shifts and the, what our body's going through, we can be pushed into that. Um, and we can have it as part of a psychoaffective disorder or psych, uh, schizophrenia, a lot of things, okay? So this person recently came out of a psychotic episode. And for my patients who have psychosis, if the voices are usually very mean, by the way, uh, they're usually, you know, really condescending, telling you to do things, shouting at you, it can be really upsetting. But we get used to them, right? And they become almost like our friends in our brain. And I've heard from tons of my patients, especially at the hospital who are like, but I miss them when they're gone. Or, you know, um, they'll stop taking their medication without telling people because they want those voices to come back. And I cannot, I cannot, encourage you enough to please stay on your medication and talk to your treatment team about this. Let your therapist, your psychiatrist know that you miss those voices. Let's let's figure this out. Tell people about it. Don't take action, okay? Now, it's very common, but the way to really, the thing that we can do about it, truly, and I, I know this isn't an easy answer, but this is, in my experience, even one of my most recent patients who was on medication, doing well, a schizophrenic uh, patient of mine, the real change for him was getting connected to a community. So in Santa Monica, where I am, where I practice currently, we have a lot of resources. And I'd referred him to, there's a uh, there's a couple of things. There's like the step up on second we have where it like helps people you can get jobs and you can also they have group therapy and there's all sorts of stuff available. There's a lot of different resources in our area, not to mention some stuff, um, you know, over at St. John's Hospital. And so anyway, in UCLA. So I'd gotten him hooked up with a bunch of different things and having that community helped get him out of his head and out of his essentially what I call like a psychotic rut where we've had psychosis so many times that we like miss what it feels like and we like want to go back and we we go back to that comfort. We have to create a new comfort. And so that was super helpful for him, not only to build confidence, because a lot of times our psychosis takes our confidence away, but it built confidence, it built community. And even he found a girlfriend, hey, extra, little extra. Um, so all of that stuff is really helpful. And I would encourage you to, you know, I don't know if there are things online now, but it used to be, I mean, I wish we were in LA because I have, I'm like, talk to Dr. Sherman, he knows, because um, he ha even has used to have his own group for um you know, people who had psychosis and schizophrenia, and he had it every week. And it was wonderful. I had a lot of patients that would get help there. So finding those groups would be really beneficial. Ask, you can call your own, uh, the hospital or your own psychiatrist and ask about that, ask about that other support. Because I know, I know this may seem odd to people, but the community is so important. And we're going to have to get you connected so that you can imagine and be part of a life that does not involve those voices. But I, I want you also to know it's very normal to miss them and that's okay. And it's okay to write about why and, and what it is. But maybe if you are able, depends on, you know, how how long the psychotic episodes have lasted, but maybe if you are able to consider like what is it about them that you miss? Is it just the companionship? Because that's what my patients have said. It's just that constant companionship. Could we Again, join groups, get into therapy more often, or even get us an emotional support animal. It can be very helpful too. Uh, my patient got a dog and that was really helpful. So there are a lot of different things that we can do, but community is key. So support groups or friends you can talk to about it, um, emotional support animals, um, even doing meetups and getting out. I know COVID's still you know, active, but oh, did you hear Sean sneeze? Sneeze heard around the world. 
But he also used to go on these hikes and biking and stuff with other people. And that was really helpful too, to meet people and get out. Um, that's what I would encourage you to do as much as possible. And even if it's online, I think that connection is still really key. I hope that that helps, but please don't stop that medication. I promise you, it does not make things better. It only makes things worse for us. So you got this. It does get better. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope that this episode was helpful and gave some, maybe some insight or some greater understanding. You all are wonderful. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.